Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. We are here today celebrating Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And here's the significance of that. As Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't ride a war horse. That would mean he came to bring war, but he rode a donkey because he came to bring peace. Not peace to earth in the terms of, you know, all, you know, rain and havoc upon man, but peace with God. And he became the means of that peace. And that's what we're here to celebrate today. And I'm so excited, man. We are, although it is Palm Sunday, we find ourselves in our Bible study on Good Friday. We will look at the cross of Jesus and what he has done for us. And man, we, I, I've been so blown away at the things that are tucked away in, in the, the, the account of the cross as Jesus went to pay the price. There is truly no other king like him. And so if you have a Bible, I would invite you to, to turn to John chapter 19 and Luke chapter 23. And if you're really, uh, you know, courageous, turn to Matthew 27 too. So Luke 19, uh, or John 19, Luke 23, and Matthew 27 That's where we find ourselves today. Stand with me as soon as you have uh, John, at least, John 19. And we're going to pick it up in verse 18 here. Jesus has already been sentenced to the cross. He's already made his way to the cross. He's already made his way to Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And this is where we pick it up in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 18. It says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this glorious account that we will go through. As tragic as it is, as incredibly horrific, the suffering of Christ it was necessary. It was his mission. And he fulfilled it for love's sake. Would you help us today, Lord, recognize the great price that Jesus has paid? And maybe we're here today and we don't really understand the cross. Would you bring revelation to our hearts today, God? Maybe we understand the cross, God, but we need a revival in our heart to remember the great price that you paid for our sin. Would you do that in us today, Lord? We each need something from you today, God. We each need to be touched by you for a revelation from you. And we know that you're here to do just that, to change us and make us more like your son. So, Lord, we give you free reign in this place. May your spirit come and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we arrive at the pinnacle of the ministry of Jesus where we find 
God in the flesh dying for the sin of the whole world by way of crucifixion. Jesus understood his fate. He understood that he would be crucified. In fact, he declared that to his disciples early on in his ministry in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is what Jesus said. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's a great picture, that that picture of Moses and the, the serpent on the stick. You might recall from the Old Testament the children of Israel in the wilderness being disobedient as they were, being disgruntled, you know, complaining and groaning. And then, eh, sound familiar? Am I, is it catching on? Well, well, what God did was he sent some serpents into the camp and he allowed people to be bitten. And yet in their, you know, when they were contaminated with the venom of that serpent, God made a way for them to be healed. And so he told Moses to take a, take a bronze and serpent, put it on a pole, and to lift it up. And anybody who would look to that pole, that serpent on that pole, would be saved, would be healed from that venom. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Jesus is that serpent on the stick. The bronze that Moses had made out of it, it represents judgment. Jesus came to pay the price. And any and all who will look upon him as the Savior crucified, pinned to the tree of Calvary, will find salvation. The venom of sin will be dissipated. The medicine of the blood of Christ will cover us, cleanse us. It will completely and totally rectify our sinfulness. It will pay for you. It's an amazing picture. Jesus understood that he must be lifted up, that he must pay the price, that he has to be crucified. And he told his disciples that many times. The, the crucifixion is a horrific and brutal, brutal death. It was originated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Persians used it as a means of capital punishment in the 6th century B.C., Alexandra the Great brought it from there to eastern Mediterranean countries and in the 4th century B.C. And the Phoenicians introduced it to Rome in the 3rd century B.C. And for 500 years, the Romans perfected the crucifixion until it was abolished by Constantine I in the 4th century A.D. Listen, crucifixion applied primarily to slaves, to disgraced soldiers, to Christians and foreigners, but it was rarely, rarely uh, brought upon Roman citizens. When a person was crucified, depending upon the flogging, they would live anywhere from six hours up to nine to ten days. Death would usually come by way of asphyxiation. And it's interesting that the attending Roman soldiers that were there at the crucifixion, no matter whose it was, they could not leave until the person died. You can imagine. These guys are brutal. They're hardened. Death means nothing to them. Life means nothing to them. Your life would mean, is meaningless to them. It's, it's almost quitting time. So what they would do would break some legs so that you would die. Sometimes they would take a spear and they would just thrust it up into your heart to burst your heart so you would, you would perish so they could go home. They would be even as cruel as suffering as a person would be being crucified, they would be as cruel as to build 
a smoky fire underneath the cross so that they would just be asphyxiated by the smoke. They couldn't leave until this person died. Here we find the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, crucified upon a cross, suffering in a manner in which you and I will never really truly understand. Now, the way that a crucifixion would work is you, you heard me last week say there would be what's called a patibulum. That is the cross beam of the cross. It was weighed somewhere around 200 pounds. And Jesus, you remember, he couldn't carry his own cross. And so uh, they, they grabbed Simon to do that for him. But they would take that patibulum and they would usually pin the, pin the wrist to the patibulum. They would drive spikes, not through the hands, but through the wrist. The hands weren't strong enough to support the body. So they would pin him through the wrist onto this thing. Sometimes they would tie people's arms on there. They did it different ways. Sometimes in the feet, they would take the two feet, they would pin one over the other and one nail through the front of the, cro- uh, the uh, stake. Sometimes they would put two nails in the feet, one on each side, and they would put them on the sides of the stake and they would drive them through the, the ankle area. It was brutal. It was incredibly painful. Understand, Jesus had already endured a flogging, a scourging that was incredible. I mean, they ripped his body to shreds. And then the pain of the pins upon his, his wrists, upon his feet, unbelievable. Now, there's much question to whether Jesus died on a stake or whether he died on a cross. You know, and Jehovah Witnesses will make sure they point that out to you because it, it, it really matters, you know, how he was crucified. It really doesn't, but the point is that he was crucified. But understand, if Jesus were pinned to a stake, he would have probably used two nails in his feet, number one. It's most probable that he was upon a cross, that he, did, he was crucified upon a T-shaped cross. Now, when they would take that, that cross, that cross beam, they would put it into a slot. The stake was already put in the ground, and they would just drop it in the slot above the stake, and, and the, body was, the weight of the body would just hang, and it would just pull the joints right out, the bones right out of the joints. And if that didn't do it, within minutes of the, the body trying to support itself, the weight of the body would just begin to dislocate the arms, the, the shoulders, the elbows, the wrists, dislocated all the force of that weight down upon them. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 14, where it declares, I am poured out like water in all my bones were out of joint. Jesus' bones were completely out of joint upon the cross. If you've ever experienced a dislocation, it's not fun. Both his arms were dislocated in several places. The position that Jesus would have put in would, would have caused his ribcage to be um, upward and outward and only allow air in. He could not exhale. You ever been in a situation where you couldn't breathe? Not fun. The only way that you could breathe upon the cross is to lift yourself up upon the nails so that you could get the air out, so you could get fresh air in. It was brutal. It was painful. And remember, his back, probably stripped of flesh, exposed the, the, all the nerves and the, all of that. I mean, it was incredibly horrendous. Face beaten beyond recognition. 
He was in excruciating pain. Unbelievable. What, would, what they would do at a crucifixion as well is they would take generally a, a piece of wood or something and they would inscribe the crime of the person and they would nail it so that everybody understood why that person was crucified. They, they did it in a public place. They did it right by a busy road, right outside the walls of the city because they wanted people to understand that Rome is not a force to be, re- not, not somebody to mess with. They are a force to be reckoned with, man. They will take your life in an instant and it will mean nothing to them. So they would do it in a very public place. We know the place. It's called Golgotha. We call it Calvary. It, it really, it means the place of the skull. It's as we talked about a couple weeks ago. There's a f- the face of a skull, probably at the base, maybe at the top, whatever, but it was there. It was in a public place that he would be hanged. Now, it's interesting that Jesus was an innocent man, so there was no crime to be inscribed upon that piece of wood. Pilate declared him innocent. Pilate washed his hands of the blood of Christ. He said, I find no fault within him. And so Pilate, very upset with the Jews, did something that was divine, I believe. It was what, what he put on the cross, the inscription he put there was not of himself, I don't believe. It, it is an incredible picture. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Anybody? Are you awake? Are you guys ready to have your minds blown? This blew my mind. When he put the inscription on there, he said, he said this Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, different Gospels, it's primarily the same sentencing, but, but the same idea. And the Jews immediately said, no, 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 don't, don't put that. Don't, don't put that. Don't, don't put that he is the king of the Jews. Make sure you put that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate refused to do that. He said, no, no, we're going to put that. Here's the reasoning why. Because that phrase written in Hebrew, Aramaic, the same, same family, same idea. You know, we have languages that the same words mean the same things and, you know, variances slightly, but it's this, it, it could say Hebrew as well. But, it, but the idea is, it's, and in Hebrew is read from right to left, same with Aramaic, right to left. The, the, the inscription of that declared that Jesus is God. If you'll throw that slide up real quick, you can see that the, the phrasing in the Aramaic says, Yahshua ha-nazareya vimelech, I don't know Hebrew, by the way, ha-hihidim. What that, there was a specific, specific type, type of hermeneutics in the Jewish culture called acrostics. Acrostics, maybe you've heard of it, the Bible code or whatnot, and you have to be careful with that, but there were certain Old Testament scriptures that were written in acrostic format. There was a poem within a poem, basically, and they would take certain letters or certain words, and those certain words and letters would be the would be the, the meaning of the entire thing. Well, when Pilate wrote this, he wrote it in acrostic format. That's why the Jews freaked out and said, no, 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 don't put that. Because if you look at the, the lettering there, according to the acrostics, the first letter of each word, the first letter, yod he vahi Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Yahweh. Not only is Jesus Christ the king of the Jews, he is the king of kings. He is God, Yahweh. That's what he wrote. 
That's why they freaked out. Mind-blowing. Unbelievable that the Lord would, would say, not only is He Savior of the world, but He is God. He is God. More and more you see in the Scriptures, as I study the Scriptures, the declaration of Jesus Christ being God in so many different ways. Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Don't mistake Him as being the Father. That Yahweh is the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yahweh. Unbelievable. Pilate declares Him as God. Don't know if he believed that. But what we know is God was in control of the moment. And what was put on that was divine. And the Jews knew it. And yet, sin stopped them from from recognizing their, 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 their fault. They were blinded by their own sin. Be careful. Be careful you can do the same thing. Make sure your heart's in check. Make sure you are constantly in fellowship with the Father. As we continue to look at the cross, uh, there are seven statements that I want to look at. The first found in Luke chapter 23. If you will turn there with me, Luke 23, we're going to pick it up in verse 34. Well, it says, and Jesus said, here's Jesus on the cross. He's being crucified. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it says that they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus hanging on the cross. He was offered a drink of, of some, some wine mixed with myrrh, which was sort of a narcotic to dull the pain, but he refused to drink it. No, no, I'm going to take the full brunt of the suffering with no doling agent. I don't want to be, I don't, I want to be sharp on the cross. Jesus didn't want his mind dulled. This is, by the way, a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. And as he's hanging on the cross there, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, did they know what they were doing? Of course they knew what they were doing physically. Did they know what they were doing spiritually? They had no idea just like you and I. When we sin, we really don't understand what we're doing in the moment. We don't understand the weight of sin. We don't comprehend. We can't see what God sees. We can't see the hatred that God has for sin. We don't understand our sin, therefore, we, we, it's easy for us to fall into it. Even if we had understanding, I wonder what we would do. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, if someone is shooting me with a gun, they're pointing a gun at me and shooting me in non-life-threatening places, I'm not crying out, Father, forgive them. I'm saying, God, kill that person. Get them. Uh, you know, will you come and rescue me out of that? Jesus is not doing that because he understands his mission. He understands why he's on the cross. He knows why he's there. He declares why he's there, forgiveness. He is there to provide forgiveness for you and I. Not, he, he wasn't just declaring that for those who were circled around the cross there, for those who were responsible for saying, crucify him, his blood be upon us and upon our children. He was doing it also for you. It was a declaration for you 2,000 some years ago and anyone else from beforehand that was looking to Jesus as being the Savior that was waiting for the Messiah to come. He said it for them as well. He came to bring forgiveness, folks but it would come at a great cost, his own blood. He said, Father, forgive them. More personally, Father, forgive Tim. Father, forgive, you can put your name in there. 
Jesus isn't saying that these guys are ignorant of their sin. But he does understand that they don't understand the weight of their sin. There's forgiveness through Jesus today. Maybe you're here burdened by your sin and you're saying, man, I don't know, I, 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 I kind of understand it. The weight is pretty heavy. God wants you to know that there's forgiveness through Jesus. He wants you to know that whatever, it's, whatever it is that you've done, that you can be forgiven because he cried out upon the cross that you might be forgiven. He loves you and he wants to forgive you. <laughs> What's amazing is the soldiers at his feet even stop for a second and hear the words of what Jesus is saying. They're so callous, so hardened that they don't, they don't even bother with, what, what did he say? What did he say? Uh, hey, we're, we're too concerned about the clothing that we're casting lots for. Uh, turn back to John chapter 19 with me, verse 23. We're going to pick up the detail there about this. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was a fulfillment of Scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things by standing, uh, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to, to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, contrary to popular belief, Jesus Christ was not crucified with a loincloth on. He was crucified naked. Just to add to the humility, the mockery, the Son of God, God the Son, the sinless Son of God was crucified naked. All his clothes were completely off. They were at the feet of these Romans. They were dividing his garments, all of them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, the humility that Jesus endured. Not only the pain, but the mockery, the shame, being crucified naked. It says here that these guys, these guys were dividing his clothes, but they found that Jesus had this incredibly beautiful tunic. For those of you who think that Jesus was, was, was rocking a goodwill outfit, you know, he wasn't. He was rocking this one-piece woven garment that was custom-made for him. It was, it was expensive. It's unbelievable. It was, it was not something that common people wore. In fact, what's more interesting, it's the kind of garment that the high priest would wear. It's a picture of Jesus Christ being our high priest, wearing this one piece woven garment saying not only am I Yahweh but I'm also high priest at the very same time and he it, you know they, they, they want that tunic and so they don't want to tear it so they cast lots to fulfill scripture now here we find the second statement of Jesus there and he makes to his mother and to his disciple who we know to be John and he says woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother D Jesus is now making a declaration that's very important to his own mom Mom, not, I'm no longer to be regarded as your son. I'm, be, I'm, re, I'm now to be regarded as your God. I'm removing myself from that relationship with you, and now our relationship will change. But I will not forsake you. I will, I will care for you because the Bible says so. 
And so Jesus, now taking his rightful position as king and God, will tell his disciple John, you take care of my mom. You take care of her. She is now your mom. Mother, he is now your son. He has taken my place, and I am seated at the right hand of the Father. I am now going to be your God. Here's what I want you to get out of that, is that although Jesus is our friend, although he is our Savior, don't ever forget that he is our God, that, he, that there needs to be reverence for him. Don't ever forget that. And also that he will take care of you and I. He took care of his own earthly mother. He'll take care of you. He loves you. Even upon the cross, Jesus is thinking about other people. He's serving other people. He is caring for other people in the midst of his own pain. Sometimes we get so consumed by our own pain that we can't serve anybody. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, he is serving others on the cross. How amazing is that? What we know is that, uh, from what we understand, Mary then went to live with John in Ephesus until she died. He took care of her, just like Jesus asked. And she beheld him as her son. Joseph was nowhere to be found. Ladies were mistreated back in that day. They would have no means to be able to take care of themselves. But Jesus made sure she was taken care of. He will make sure you're taken care of. You can trust him. Back to uh, Luke 23, where we find the, set, the third statement there. We're doing some Bible marathon here, so you can go back. Luke 23, but picking up in verse 35. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. For if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who was hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the, wrong, the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, and he said, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour. And then, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We'll get into that later. But, but Jesus, here now, the crowd starts to mock him as he is upon the cross. They say, if you can save others, why don't you save yourself? If you're really the Christ, the Son of God, then let's see you save yourself. These soldiers start mocking him as well. Even one of the... One of the criminals on the cross begins to mock Jesus. Yeah, come on, if you're really the Savior, you, why don't you save us as well? And the other that is crucified with him cries out to Jesus. He says, listen, we are getting our just due. We deserve what we have done, but Jesus did nothing. He's an innocent man. He is sinless. He understands the sinlessness of Christ. And notice what he says. Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your... Is that not your prayer? Is that not what you cry out to Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come in your glory. Remember me, Jesus. It's a cry of faith to this, by this man. He is crying out to Jesus. You're my only way. 
There is no other way that I can be saved. You are my only hope. You are my Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jesus. Only you can save me. Or the other way around, one or the other. Only you can do it. Listen, his faith was active. His heart was sincere. He was believing in Jesus to be the king and that has a kingdom not of this world. And Jesus, when you come to Jesus like that, he will not put you to shame. He says this to them. He says this to this man. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Notice Jesus didn't say, oh, son, you have to be baptized to be saved. I'm sorry. It's too late for you. Notice that he, that he didn't say, you have to live a certain period of time on earth in order for, for me to save you. you. You have to do certain things in order for me to save you. You have to know the Bible, all the Bible chapters, all the books of the Bible in order in order to be, no, he didn't say any of that. He said, it's by faith. You believed in me and therefore you were saved. You will be in paradise with me. It's a promise. It's a picture of salvation. It's the way that, and it's so difficult for us to grasp. And yet, here's a man being crucified on his deathbed, and he cries out by faith, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you believe it for yourself this morning? Do you believe that when you take your last breath that you will be with him in paradise? He declared it not just to him, but to you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That when I go to prepare a place, I will come and get you. I will not leave you as orphans. He is coming back for you. Do you believe it? It's by faith. We trust him. He, he will do what he says he's going to do. Listen, it is by faith alone. Sola fida. By faith alone. And this is a glorious truth here. Notice it says that it was the sixth hour, which is about noontime. And it says that there was a darkness that came over the land until about the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., about the time when Jesus gave up the ghost. This was the time frame when the Father would pour out His wrath upon Jesus Christ. The entire sin of the world would be upon Him. There was a meteorological change there as a result of the wrath of God. This is the cup that Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, Your will be done, not mine. This is what He was dreading. And for good reason. Here we see Jesus in Matthew 27. I have the verse up for you. You can flip there if you like. The cry out from the cross. Uh, during this time, Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Jesus is quoting Psalm 21. And in fact, Psalm 21 is a parallel to everything that's going on in the cross. So if you get time later this week, just read Psalm 22 and you can go through, uh, you know, this whole cross experience and Jesus is fulfilling every one of these phrases and different things in different ways. It's amazing. But Psalm 21, 22, 1 says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, notice, is addressing the Father is my God in this moment because he was fully separated from the Father as a result of sin. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. He who knew no sin became sin. That means Jesus, for the first time in the history of the world, had no relationship with his Father. There was no fellowship with the Father in this moment. No fellowship at all. You've been in fellowship with the Father from eternity past to eternity present, and then in this moment, you were completely separated from the Father, and now He becomes God because the humanity of Christ is being shown that He has become the Lamb of God 
to take away the sins of the world. All the sin of the world was upon him. And the father separated himself because the father separates himself from sin. I don't know what that was like. But the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? are heart-wrenching. It's like a child in a store that's screaming out, Mommy, Mommy, where are you? Panicked because they don't know where. This is what I see as Jesus on the cross. Father, where are you? God, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He knows why. The sin of the world is why he was forsaken. It is why he came. I have to imagine that Jesus being God before his earthly presence, thought about this moment. He's God. He created every moment in the world. He created everything in the world. He created this moment. He's got to be thinking, this is unbelievable. I I don't even, I, I mean, he's God. He knows everything. But I can't even fathom the moment of what it's like to be with God forever and then to be separated him for a period of time, for three hours. And it says it was, there was this darkness upon the world. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It was for us. He didn't cower. Even in this moment when he drank the cup of, of the wrath of God. Because he did it for us. He loves you. He loves me. He separated himself from the Father so that you and I could have a relationship with him. He replaced the wrath for you. He separated himself for you because he loves you that much. Listen, Jesus was not just agonizing physically here. This was an emotional agonizing of the Son of God. And if you're here hurting emotionally today, know that Jesus suffered emotionally. He knows what it's like. He can meet you where you are. He paid the price for it. And he wants to bring you in perfect peace and fellowship with the Father through his life, death, and resurrection. Back to John 19. We pick it up in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch And held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the fifth declaration that Jesus makes. I thirst. I thirst. There was certainly a physical thirst of Christ here, no doubt. No doubt. But I think the thirst also is meant to to, to describe the spiritual thirst of being separated from the Father. Where there is no fellowship with him. You are dry and barren land. You are a desert inside. You are dead. Your bones are dry. There is no life in you. Jesus says, I thirst. I thirst. And he wants to give you the living water that can quench the thirst. He told the woman at the well, you continue to come to this well and you drink of this water can never satisfy you. Religion, reading the Bible, praying, all of these things that you think are going to bring, that going to satisfy that thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst. He gives you living water that can satisfy that thirst. It's a representation of the Holy Spirit. He can satisfy the, spiritually, the spiritual thirsty today. 
Only he can do that. Jesus says, I thirst. And so they, they take this sour wine. This isn't to be confused with the wine that was mixed with myrrh that he refused. But again, this is a, a sour wine. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 42.2 where it says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? They give a, a spiritually and physically dehydrated Jesus this sour wine, and he, it says he partakes of it. It's a watered-down mixture that they would give him. And so he partakes of this, and as he partake of that, then he gives us the sixth and final uh, the sixth statement, I'm sorry, to tell us die. To tell us die. It is finished. This is the shout of victory from Jesus upon the cross. It's finished. I've, I've done my job. I have ran my race. I've finished the course. It's finished. I paid the price for the sin of the world. Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God, and only He could do this. The debt that we owed was now paid in full for any and all who would place their faith in Jesus. He made that declaration for even you and I today. It is finished. Is that true for you today? Is the wrath of God been satisfied in your life? Are you still spiritually thirsty? Is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Are you sealed and are you filled with the Holy Spirit today? Are you saved? He wants you to know that it was finished for you 2,000 years ago. And by faith, you can make that true. You can get that stamp of the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you today by faith. Jesus then tells us that he, that he, give, that he, gives, he, gives, up, he gives up the ghost. In Luke 23, verses 49, it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus had breath here. He had breath. As he lifted himself up, he had strength in his body to lift himself up to declare these words to the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What I want you to understand here is that he was 100% in control of when he gave up the ghost. He wasn't ready to die he wasn't like, oh, I better say this. I'm about ready to die. No, he was 100% in control. He said, no one takes my life from me. My human life, my human body will not take my life from me. These Romans will not take my life from me. These Jews will not take their life from me. No one will take my life from me. I will lay it down. That is sovereignty, folks. In the midst of his humanity, he says, I will lay my life down. And therefore, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he just blew his spirit right out of his body. And he breathed his last. I'm spitting all over the place. It's crazy up here. Good thing we have a big spit guard here. No, I'm just kidding. We don't. But they say, anyway. But uh, hey, Jesus here gave up his life. He committed his perfect spirit into the hands of the Father. He decided the time. And after the wrath of God had been satisfied, his suffering was over. It was time to, for him to go home. It was time for him to take his seat at the throne. It was time for him to become the God of all creation. He had satisfied the wrath of God for any and all who would believe. His life for your life. 
Look, as a result of his death, we find that Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54 say, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tomb was also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the, the centurion and those who were with him kept watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake, And what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. (laughs) The impact of the finished work of Jesus Christ rocked the universe, folks. It rocked the universe. It shook Jerusalem like one of those little globes that you shake and then you sit and watch. You know, he, he shook the world when he gave up the ghost. It was finished. And it says here that God himself took that veil four inches thick of all kinds of different materials and he tore it like a piece of paper from top to bottom, opening up fellowship with him through his son. Is that amazing? No one could come into his presence except once a year. And that was with the blood of a perfect sacrifice that could be put upon the mercy seat of, uh, there in, in the Holy of Holies that our sin uh, could be atoned for, could be covered And Jesus Christ himself put himself upon the mercy seat, his blood there, and God said, that's enough. He rips the separation between man and God and opens up a way through Jesus Christ that we can be in fellowship with the Father. What great love that is. We now now have access to the Father by faith through his Son. Not only that, but like for real, dead people came to life. After he had finished, it's a a picture of what Jesus does. He brings dead people back to life. His work on the cross brings dead people back to life. We are dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, the Bible declares. And yet we are made alive in Christ. He brought you back. He rose you up by faith. It was his work, his his work that declared it is finished for you that caused you to live again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise to God. Thank you, Lord, that you brought me back to life. Listen, if you're not rejoicing in your relationship with Jesus today, you've forgotten. You've forgotten what he's done. It's finished for you. He gave up the ghost. He laid his life down. I hope you remember that this morning. It impacted one person in particular that's recorded in the scriptures, this centurion. This guy had seen countless crucifixions. He had seen crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. Why was this one any different than anyone else? There was revelation in this crucifixion for this man. It's a picture of what God had done through the cross, that he had opened up the way even for Gentiles to be saved. This centurion representative of the Gentile race, everybody that's non-Jew, they can be saved too. He gave him revelation there. Truly, he was the son of God. Truly, he is who he says he is. Remember, he was crucified for, for taking on that title, Son of God, because it also meant God the Son. Truly, He is my God. Truly is. There was revelation in this moment for that man. Back to John 19, verses 31 through 42. Since it was the day of Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might 
be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear and at once they came out, there came out blood and water. Not one of Jesus' bones were broken, which is prophetic. Not one of his bones were broken. It was not normal. Normally the bones would be broken. Even in the crucifixion process, the bones would be broken. Not one of his bones were broken and yet uh, and it says that the only thing that was broken in Jesus was his heart his heart had burst the moment he said father into your hands I commit your spirit his heart burst and he burst for you his heart was broken for you his heart it longs to be in relationship with you and when that 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 soldier thrust that spear up into him the the mixture of that water and blood was evidence that his heart had already burst It's been said that Jesus died of a broken heart. Everything that was done was done according to the prophetic picture of the Messiah and it was done for love's sake. John now declares his eyewitness account in verse 35 there. He who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. John is saying, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I watched him crucified. I watched the things that he said. I'm telling you the truth. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet ever, which had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was uh, closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. Listen, both Nicodemus and Joseph were secret followers of Jesus. Here's what I find interesting is that they became public followers of Jesus. If you're in genuine relationship with Jesus, your private relationship will become public, folks. It is what it is. You cannot contain what he has done. As God begins to change your heart, you will make a public confession that he is your Lord and Savior. You will not cower when people stand against him. You will say, hey, that's my Lord. That's my Savior. Joseph and Nicodemus in this moment took a stand for Jesus. They could have lost everything. They were asking for persecution themselves by doing what they did, but they weighed the risk and said Jesus was far greater. He was far greater. There is no way. I mean, there's no, there is no comparison to who Jesus is compared to anybody else in this world. Don't ever cower back. Listen, if you're... You know, I, I, I find it interesting when we find those people in the world that say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and it's personal. It's personal. Okay, maybe that personal relationship needs to get a little more personal, if you know what I mean, because it seems like you're not really that personal with Jesus, because when you're personal, you become public with your relationship with Jesus. Like if you're really a disciple of Jesus, uh, he puts you on mission, and therefore the Spirit of God is yearning within you to tell somebody about this great king that we have. It's a private relationship, really. 
Interesting. Jesus just died for you, or did he die for the world, and are you supposed to tell them that? It's interesting the way that works. And yet they risked it all because Jesus was far greater. They take his body, they anoint him, they wrap him up, and they place him in a brand new tomb as the word of God says would happen. Unbelievable. Here we have these seven declarations made by Jesus on the cross, making him like no other king in human history. He wants you to know one thing today, and if you don't hear anything else, you hear this. He wants you to know that he would do it all over again. He would come back, even knowing what he knows, he would come back and he would do it all over again for you because he loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you. He says you're worth the risk. You're worth the risk. You're worth the price that he paid for you. I hope you feel special today. I hope you feel very loved. Listen, don't get yourself in a little pity party about how nothing's going your way. Listen to what Jesus has done for you. Don't, 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 don't get so earthly focused on all the circumstances that you're going in your life that you're overwhelmed with that, that you're not impressed with what He's done for you. Be impressed with Him today. Be surrendered to what He's done. Be amazed by the love that He poured out for you upon the cross. Amen? Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning and for the great declaration of our Savior our King, our Lord. The seven things that He declared on the cross, not just for those there present that day, but for us today even. You want to bring forgiveness into our lives, Lord. You know that You'll take care of us in every moment of our life, Father. You can satisfy the spiritual thirsty today. Lord, You can bring the dead back to life. You have redeemed us. You have paid the price for us, God. And We want to give you praise and honor this morning for that. We thank you that nearly 2,000 years ago, you rode into Jerusalem as a king of peace that wanted to make peace for man before you, Father. Wanted to become the peace that we so need with you, Father. We ask this morning, God, that you would just rejuvenate our relationship, God. You would revive us in your spirit this morning. Lord, as we uh, prepare for Resurrection Sunday next week, and just so excited. I mean, you've risen, and we know that, but we will celebrate next week. Will you help us this week to just be, be excited about what you've done? Lord, let us be on mission to go out and to, to declare to the world that there is no other king like Jesus. Lord, We pray this morning for anybody that isn't in right relationship with you that you give the faith this morning to come to simply lay their lives down before you, Father. And even as you said, Lord, that that those who will deny me publicly, you will deny before your Father in heaven, that we would be bold in our faith this morning, Lord, that we would come, that we would come and pray with somebody down front here, the prayer of salvation. Lord, if there needs to be rededication in this place, Lord, just do your will in this place this morning. We pray for your spirit to move now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.